Hi, good afternoon, and a special good evening to all of my friends over there in Europe, uh, for whom it is not the middle of the night. Uh, so anyway, thank you for joining me. Uh, today <clears throat> is our first bonus session, uh, and as I somewhat suspected, um, we're uh, going to be first finishing up uh, the uh, Turin stuff from last night that we didn't get to, and then we're going to be moving on to uh, uh, some questions that I have received both during the sessions earlier on and uh, by email from people. I have a bunch of really good questions on Tour and Turin uh, to talk about here tonight. So uh, first let's jump back to um, Turin. I know this is going to be a little awkward for those of you who are not able to join us last night. Uh, it, it was ended up being a, sort of a quick turnaround between these two classes. Um, so I, I think for uh, you, you just have to sort of bear with me and then you'll be able to go back and look at the first half of the of the class. But w w where we got to was actually a sort of an interesting uh, stopping point. We had been looking at the, uh, the decisions of Turin uh, and his rationale behind them and sort of what factors were in play for him as he's making his choices throughout his story. And we were just getting to the dragon-slaying incest and suicide part of the story uh, when we stopped. So that's where we're going to pick up. In fact, we're going to start right now with the death of the dragon. Uh, great heart, said Turambar. Of course, he's speaking uh, to the ill-fated Hunthor, though calling somebody ill-fated in Turin's story is, is somewhat ironic in itself. Um, great heart, said Turambar. Happy was the choice that took you for a helper. Remember, Turin has just staggered and almost fallen into the river, and Hunthor caught and, st and steadied him. Um, so Hunthor has just saved his life. Turin almost, almost failed there in the end and would have if it hadn't been for Hunthor. But even as he spoke, a great stone hurtled from above and smote Hunthor on the head, and he fell into the water, and so ended, not the least valiant of the house of Haleth. Then Turambar cried, Alas, it is ill to walk in my shadow. Why did I seek aid? For now you are alone, O master of doom, as you should have known it must be. Now conquer alone." Then he summoned to him all his will, and all his hatred of the dragon in his master, and it seemed that suddenly he found a strength of heart and of body that he had not known before, and he climbed the cliff from stone to stone and root to root, until he seized at last a slender tree that grew a little beneath the lip of the chasm, and though its top was blasted, it held still fast by its roots. And even as he steadied himself in a fork of its boughs, the midmost parts of the dragon came above him, and swayed down with their weight almost upon his head, ere Glaurung could heave them up. Pale and wrinkled was their underside, all dank with a grey slime, to which clung all manner of dropping filth, and it stank of death. Then Turambar drew the black sword of Beleg, and stabbed upwards with all the might of his arm and of his hate, and the deadly blade, long and greedy, went into the belly even to its hilts. All right. Um, first, uh, Hunthor. What do you make of Hunthor and uh, Turambar's reaction uh, to the death of Hunthor there? Um, it seems, on the one hand, to have been, you know, just at the moment when he says... Boy, it was lucky that I had you here uh, along with me. Uh, and then immediately he dies, and he's like, "Oh boy, I never should have brought you along." Right? Um, uh, it's it's. I mean, on the one hand, really tragic, of course, as Jeff was just saying, it certainly is. Um, but look at 
what I am most interested in here is Turin's response to it. That is to say, you know, if we um, if we're asking the question with Hunthor, you know, what uh, do we see Hunthor stricken down by the curse of Morgoth, or what's going on? I mean, Hunthor. Uh, is obviously sort of the victim of his own fate. That is to say, this is not a question of, like, to what extent was this his own choice? I mean, he did volunteer for this. It was dangerous. He was likely to die, and he does die. Um, so in that sense, of course, he sort of got himself into it. But the this sort of, you know, act of God nature of this, all of a sudden, wham, he's just hit on the head with a stone and, 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 and is gone, um, uh, seems to Turin... Turin certainly interprets it as a stroke of fate, right? But look, more importantly, he doesn't just view it as a stroke of fate. This is not really, ah, Hunthor's time had come, right? Nor even is it, ah, cruel Morgoth, you have sm- you have smitten down my friend. It's not even that either, right? Uh, he instead looks at the fate of Hunthor and says, well, that's me all over again, isn't it, <laughs> right? Anybody who comes along with me, screwed. That's what that's what happens to them. It's similar in its way to his rationale for not going to Doriath. We looked at this a little bit last night. He doesn't want to go to Doriath uh, to find Morwen and Neonor, which, in retrospect, would actually have been a pretty keen idea, but he doesn't do it as Iron lays it upon him to do because he feels that by his very presence, if he goes there, he's going to mess things up, that they're going to regret it, that he's going to regret it, that he will bring his shadow upon them. It is ill to walk in my shadow. Notice how he has uh, sort of internalized that even more, right? You know, And here, because I think here he's clearly not just talking about his actual literal shadow, right? Um, we've seen this language of of this, uh, of this you know, he, he says again in that passage with Morwen and Neonor that he would rather leave them unshadowed for a while by not going there. There's this shadow of doom. There's this shadow of this curse. It's the dark shadow, remember, that he think, that he believes and hopes that he has conquered in naming himself Turambar. And yet he sees here, um, clearly he believes, he's not escaped it. There's a kind of fatalism there. Why did I seek aid? Um, you are now alone, O master of doom, as you should have known it must be. Um... Yeah, Sarah says, uh, contrast Frodo and Sam being meant to go together, Turin is meant to go alone, in his mind anyway. Yes, Sarah, in his mind anyway. Um, There is a kind of, you know, and this is one of the things we were looking at last night, we can see this pattern fitting here as well, A, a, a certain sort of almost self-aggrandizement even in his suffering even in his even in his ill fate um that he sees these things as sort of naturally coming along with him they may to some extent i mean we know that the curse of morgoth which does seem in fact to be effective is indeed laid upon him um but uh but that tendency to sort of turn inwards and uh, sort of regard himself and, and, you know in this you are now alone as it as you must as you should have known it must be um, the kind of combination of self-aggrandizement and self-loathing there um, that come that, that that peculiar combination strikes me as sort of very characteristic of Turin's character um, yeah yeah um, his his 
referring to his name. Now we talked about his naming, and I, I last night, and I mentioned how uh, the 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 version of it that's given in this extended version here, that is contrasted with the Silmarillion version, makes like a, a hundred times more sense, or rather, makes a hundred times more sense to me out of the whole stretch of time that Turin spends in Brethel. That is not that he uh, the way it's expressed in this version, is not that he's going to Brethel and saying, now I am the conqueror, going into retirement, right? I, I, obviously, I've won, so I'm going to rename myself uh, Master of Doom, because obviously, you know, it, it, how anybody could think that after his career to date um, always struck me as incredibly puzzling. Um, but in this version, that isn't how he translates it, or rather, how he translates it when he explains it to Nenial seems to express or explain what he meant internally when he was giving himself this name, and that is Master of the Black Shadow. Um, he is identifying, do, not just doom in general, it's just fate generally understood, not the fates of Arda, as Melkor expresses it when he gives himself that same name, Master of the Fates of Arda, but rather... Um, that his doom, in what the doom that he is master of, is the doom laid upon him by Morgoth, the Black Shadow, uh, that has been laid upon him by Morgoth's curse. That he believes he has escaped or defeated that Black Shadow, that curse, in some way by coming to Bretho, and that's why he is calling himself Turambar. He is starting sort of a new life for himself and leaving his kin in Doriath. Remember, that's sort of the choice that he makes when he leaves Dor Loman. So therefore. I read his um, his uh, his rename, or you know, his sort of uh, reiteration of his name here. For now, you are alone, O Master of Doom, as somewhat wry, uh, you know, almost sort of self-taunting. You know, you've claimed that you're the Master of Doom. You've claimed that you have defeated the Black Shadow. Get it done. Right. If that's your name, live up to it. Um, and one passage that I meant to get to last night, but didn't get to, and, and had to skip today because we had so many other things to talk about, was the moment when he chooses to 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 go forth against Glaurung when he decides not to run but to stand up to Glaurung, and explicitly he's trying to live up to his name. Um, he's called himself Turambar, and now he's got to prove it, right? And he's going to prove it by standing up to Glaurung, and you know, uh, but Glaurung at least I will slay. So now is sort of the final point where he is having to actually follow through. Now, um, uh, the other, of course, fascinating point. There are two other elements of the, this description of his slaying of the dragon that I find really fascinating. One of the things that you will have noticed in my discussion of the Turin story here is that I've been trying to focus on the parts that I find so illuminating from this version of the story, the extra stuff that we get that isn't in the Silmarillion, and that I think adds just a world of richness and context to it. Um, I, I, although, you know, in some ways, I read, I, whenever I read the Turin story in the Silmarillion, uh, uh, to quote uh, Samuel Johnson wildly out of context, I never wish it longer. Um, it's always quite long enough for me, and I'm always relieved to come to the end of it. Um, I enjoy it, but nevertheless, coming to the end is a relief. Um, so in some ways, I wouldn't have guessed that getting a version of it that was a great deal longer... I would enjoy much more, but I really very much do. I think the longer version of the Turin story is a marvelous enrichment of it. Um, and there are, some, there are some fantastic things that we get here. Two more elements in this passage that I think are, are, are really fascinating, in which several of you were drawing, in, several of the people, I should say, 
who were uh, with me last night were drawing attention to and we didn't get to. Um, and it seemed that suddenly he found a strength of heart and of body that he had not known before. Turin seems to be inspired in some way. He summons to him all his will and all his hatred of the dragon and his master. So is he drawing on his own resources in a brand new way? That's possible. I mean, we certainly do have his own strength and his own resolve that he is rallying them uh, in a new way. But is there also some kind of external force at play here? And I think that that might be so. Um, that's something that I think that we can actually, I, I suspect anyway, the occurrence of that here. And again, when we see him choosing to go after the dragon, um, it's, I think in this case we see him acting a little bit differently than we've seen him act before. There's a, there's a, there's a level of almost submission. That's not quite the right word to use of Turin, exactly. Um, we've seen Tuor submit to the will of the gods and make himself an instrument uh, of fate. Right, he is the instrument of the fate that Olmo has laid down, um, and you know gives himself up to be Olmo's messenger, to be a tool in that way. Um, Turin doesn't, you know, he he doesn't want to. You know, the very first passage we looked at last night was his refusal to s submit to Thingol's doom. He wants to be his own doomsman and go his own way, and that seems to be Turin's approach all the way through. But in the in this moment and in the moments leading up to it when he goes to kill the dragon um he does in fact seem to be in a sense submitting himself to be the instrument of fate his it it, it does seem to be his fate and not in the doom of morgoth to be the slayer of glaurung and he gets there and he seems to have help in doing it um so I think that that's, that's a really important and, and interesting element there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. At, at Andy is pointing out, thinking of the actual roots of Turambar. Um, uh, he says that it's interesting that Tur, T-U-R, really does mean king, uh, and Umbar can mean either fate or the world, but it doesn't, you know, so therefore, I mean, the, his name doesn't actually translate to Master of the Dark Shadow. Um, uh, that's that's not how you would, the, the, you know, Andy says the literal way to say that in Sindarin would be Tur Mor Loman. Um, but that's exactly, my, my argument there is not, not that he's like mistranslating, like, oh, shoot, Turin misled by a, by a translation error, but rather, of course, that that's how he's interpreting it, right? It means fate, and you can, and therefore, his, his, his explanation of his name to Ninio as uh, Lord of the, uh, you know, Master of the Dark Shadow is sort of his interpretation, his sort of spin on his name. It shows us what does the concept of fate mean to you, Turin? He's not thinking in that bigger picture. He's not thinking of, you know, sort of the fate laid down to him. You think about um, the way that doom is used, the, you know, the concept of doom is used in the Baron and Luthien story in the Silmarillion, right? You know, his doom drove him on, right? It is the, f the doom of Baron that... Um, uh, that allows him to get through the girdle of Melian, right? This mighty doom is upon him. 
the doom of Baron, this is not a, a curse of Morgoth or anything, right? This is his fate. It's his destiny. This is the role that he has to play in the song of history. Um, and it seems to have been laid upon him by the Valar, by Iluvatar through the Valar. It's part of the big picture. Turin doesn't seem to be thinking about that big picture at all. Almost ever, actually. And again, we were looking at, in his objection to the Valar and his, uh, his, his strategy at Nargothrond and his rationale for it, how he explicitly um, does not do that kind of thing, does not look at things in that way. So therefore, when he says, when he calls himself here Master of Doom, when he thinks about Master of Fate and what does that mean, when he names himself Turambar, he's thinking about Morgoth and his fate, the fate that has been laid down, the doom that has been laid upon him uh, by Morgoth. Um, and I think that that's, um, I think that that's a really... Uh, a really important and fascinating insight into what's actually going on in Turin's head when he adopts the name Turambar, and then again when he spurs himself on with it here. Um, the other element of this description that I really loved was the description of that blasted tree. Uh, and here, you know, uh, there's sort of a, a risk of, 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 of overdoing it with the symbolism stuff and getting a little too English teachery in the reading of this, but I find this description so evocative, I can't resist. Um, he seized at last a slender tree that grew a little beneath the lip of the chasm, and though its top was blasted, it held still fast by its roots. Um, that image, you know, the, uh, th that tree seems so emblematic. Uh, and I can't help myself, I can't help but think of the House of Hador. You know, uh, the way in which, you know, you could think of it as the House of Hador, you could think of it even as, you know, sort of the whole alliance of elves and the Adain here in, 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 in Beleriand um, that's been blasted on top, but its roots still hold deep, and it is by holding on to that, by, by you know, by, uh, by pulling himself up uh, by that that he's able to reach to Glaurung. Um, Alden says it sounds like Turin himself, in a sense, yes. Um, uh, yes, I think it does. Um, so, yeah, that... Uh, it's another moment, and if, I, if, I'm, if I'm at all justified in doing that kind of a symbolic interpretation of that tree, how that contributes to the story, again, it seems to me to point to the fact that... Yeah, you know, so Alden thinking about your reading there, which I like. Um, Turin, you know, his his life is like the blasted tree. His whole career has been like the blasted tree. Things have not gone well. He has not thriven as a tree, right? He has not b borne fruit. He has not blossomed. He is with it, but his roots are still deep. Uh, and he's able to cling on by that. It is that which enables him to perform his one great function, his one great feat. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, that's interesting. Kate says it uh, reminded her also of the, the tree, the birch tree and the Smith of Wooten Major. Um, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that, uh, Kate, but yeah, that the, the tree, the birch tree that protects uh, Smith and gets all of its leaves ripped off and injured. Um, yeah, yeah, and of course uh, it, I can't help but think of you know d deep roots are not reached by the frost here as well, um, but um, anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, 
And so, you know, I don't want to make too much of it, but the thing that I would point to here, and I think that if we, you know, my, my biggest take home from this passage, from the description of the, de- of, the, of the slaying of the dragon is, if we emerge from this Turin story only saying, well, that was the story of a guy who totally blew it and all the horrible things that happened because he blew it. It's easy to emerge from the Turin story with that, I, with that reaction. But if that's what we do, I think we're missing the point. I don't think that the Turin story is really primarily, in the end, about that. I mean, yeah, he blows a lot. He makes a lot of bad choices. All those things are, are true. But that's not only what happens. He still does accomplish something. And what he accomplishes is not only of practical value, as Glaurung was kind of a big deal, but more importantly, of symbolic value. You know, that is, you know, you think about Turin's own words about, you know, standing against Morgoth and dying. Um, he stands against Morgoth and dies. You know, the, the, uh, you think about the death blow that Turin in the earlier version was destined to strike to Morgoth himself. And the, the strike against Glaurung is at least a metaphor of that. Um, and I think that that's really an important thing. Uh, and, and something that I think it seems pretty clear that the elves, both then and later on, um, are remembering. Jeff was asking, does slaying the dragon make Turin the elf friend? Of course, many people have been recalling how Turin is somewhat counterintuitively, at least to many readers of the Silmarillion, somewhat counterintuitively listed among the mightiest elf friends of old by Elrond at the Council of Elrond in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, Yes, I absolutely do think that it's the slaying of the dragon that makes, that, that, that enables Turin to make that list. Um, I you know, I have said before that if you look at the whole career of Turin, it kind of seems like, uh, as far as the elves are concerned, Turin's career is kind of a net loss. I mean, if you weigh the death of the eventual death of Glaurung against the downfall of Nargothrond and everything else, um, that uh, that it seems you know probably a net loss, perhaps in some ways. But that's apparently not how the elves are looking at it. That seems pretty clear to them, at least. The slaying of Dr- of, of Glaurung was a sort of a sufficiently important in various ways deed that it did in fact outweigh the rest and made him that kind of a figure of importance um on to incest and suicide oop no not murder suicide I said okay um we'll get to murder in a second Then suddenly Neonor started to her feet, and stood pale as a wraith in the moon, and looked down on Turin, and cried, Farewell, O twice-beloved, Ah, Turin Turambar, Torun Ambartanan, Master of doom, by doom mastered, O happy to be dead. Then distraught with woe and the horror that that had overtaken her, she fled wildly from that place, and Brondir stumbled after her, crying, Wait, wait, Niniel! One moment she paused, looking back with staring eyes. Wait, she cried, wait! That was ever your counsel, would that I had heeded, but now it is too late, and now I will wait no more upon Middle-earth. And she sped on before him. Swiftly she came to the brink of Cabid and Arras, and there stood and looked on the loud water, crying, Water, water, 
Take now Niniel, Nianor, daughter of Hurin, mourning, mourning, daughter of Morwen. Take me and bear me down to the sea. With that she cast herself over the brink, a flash of white swallowed in the dark chasm, a cry lost in the roaring of the river. Okay. Um... Where do I start talking about this passage? Um, okay. Let's start with the incest. I find it really fascinating how the incest is treated in this story. On the one hand, it is, in one way, in one sense the most horrific element. Clearly to the characters it is most horrific. Um, It is the thing which more than anything else makes the fate of the children of Turin so remarkable to everybody who comes... I mean, Mablong, when he discovers what has happened, is... I mean, he's seen lots of people killed. You know, like lots of horrible things have happened. But this trumps even the Beleg scene. Now, I say that. Let me say, I still think that the moment when Turin sees in a flash of lightning that it is Beleg Kuthalian, his closest friend who risked everything to save him, that he killed in the act of being saved by him, is still, without question, for me, the most painful moment, one of the most moving moments in anything that Tolkien ever wrote. Uh, Not trying to not trying to downplay that. Uh, but the element of Turin's story that makes the fate of Turin and Neonor, that makes the fate of the children of Hurin, um, uniquely horrifying in the list of the terrible deeds of Morgoth in the first age of Middle-earth, is the incest. That is the weight that it does carry in the story. It is that, that is the horror that overtakes her. Um, and that makes her to flee wildly from that place. Um, that is the thing, you know, the, 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 the child conceived in incest that she is bearing in her womb at this moment is what Glaurung, um, in his most horrible and biting statement that he makes to, Nia, to Nienor before he dies, uh, you, know, so, you know, but the worst of his deeds thou shalt feel within thyself. It's awful. Um, but, but... What Tolkien does with it, I think, is fascinating. Um, It's, on the one hand, that most horrific of elements. But on the other hand, Turin and Neonor both it's awful, but it's awful only in the way that it has been twisted. That is to say, I'm trying to say this really carefully because it'd be so hard to misunderstand it. Or rather, the thing that I'm trying to, um, the thing that I am trying to describe is something which is intrinsically sort of contradictory or, uh, or paradoxical almost. Um, there's that horrible moment, and we looked, this is the last passage we looked at in last night's class. Um, it's the one where Turin talks about his name, Turambar, and uh, how he, um, 
uh, how he, you know, what the name means. And that he says that there was a shadow on him too, but his shadow passed uh, when he met her. And that she has brought to him happiness. Turin has been happy with Nino. And it's one of the only times in his entire life that he's been happy. Certainly the first time since the the, the near Nitharnoidiad that he's been happy. Um, was he happy, you know, with Beleg and Amon Ruth before things went bad? You know, maybe there was a kind of... But even there, that was only a means to an end, right? He was still just trying to rally people, hoping ultimately uh, to go back and retake Dor Loman. That's what we're told in this uh, expanded version. Um, so even there, I don't think we can see a kind of satisfaction. There was satisfaction here. Uh, and more importantly, that hole that was left in his life, remember in his childhood, when and I said since the near night, since before that, right? Since the death of his sister, Lalith, since laughter was stilled forever in his household, he has never found happiness. He has never found laughter in his life. Laughter has died. And laughter is replaced by mourning in the in the house of Hador, in the household of, of Hurin. Um, the sort of quasi-allegorical status of Turin's two sisters couldn't be plainer in its emotional force. And I'm not, of course, trying to cheapen them as characters. They are named allegorically, uh, sort of explicitly, by their parents. <laughs> they serve as allegories to their parents. Uh, I mean, that's why they're named this. Their, their, their parents, you know, it's, it's not like a medieval allegory where there's a character running around whose name is Gluttony and seems unaware of the fact that, you know, their name Gluttony means a particular... You know, it's, it's, it's not like that's sort of a cue to the reader that the people inside the story don't get. They know this, right? They named their, their, their first daughter Lalith uh, because she was laughter and brought laughter to the household. Uh, Morwen names her second daughter Neonor Mourning because uh, she is in mourning. Her husband has died during the pregnancy. Um, and her, her husband has died in her land fallen. So the two of them are explicitly taken, even within the story and by the characters themselves, as kind of symbols or embodiments of laughter and mourning. In Nino, in the Tear Maiden, Turin almost briefly finds happiness again. And in this moment, when Neonor discovers <clears throat> that she is Neonor, discovers that her husband is her brother, her reaction is, on the one hand, horror, but at the same time, she, you know, I get, there's sort of the echo of that, um, when she finds Turin, she feels that she was, she has found something that she was seeking in her darkness, and on the one hand, when that is said earlier on, it's, it's, it's just a horrible, horrible moment of dramatic irony that we as readers are just writhing when we're hearing that. But at the same time, it remains true. She has found her brother. And she... And I have always found, though I find that scene with Beleg by far the most moving and the most touching moment, the most terrible moment uh, in the story the most beautiful moment in this story I have always found to be her words uh, there when she confronts Turin uh, what she believes to be Turin's dead body there, farewell O twice beloved Right? she doesn't love him less 
she still loves him as she has loved him. Now she realizes he's her brother. And while that's horrible, it doesn't remove the love that she has for him, right? She can't live with it. She can't go on. But um, there is a sense in which the, the love that they have had, the light that the two of them brought to each other, doesn't die, is not completely poisoned by the horror so strongly emphasized of their of of the fact that their relationship was incestuous that um, through the curse transmitted through Glaurung in Glaurung in the sort of the spell of amnesia that was placed upon Neonor, Morgoth has managed to poison uh, to mortally poison the joy of the reunion. Oh, you know, it's not really a reunion. Turin and Neonor have never met. He left before she was born. Um, but still, the, uh, it's a, the, the reunion of the, of the children of Hurin, um, Morgoth has, has poisoned that. But he can't kill it entirely. And there is still some light and some beauty that shines through there. Um, and that treatment of the incestuous relationship, I think, is um, fascinating. And that is the thing which sets Tolkien's treatment of this aside from almost any other treatment I've seen. I mean, I think, for instance, of Oedipus. You know, that's the incest story that most people are familiar with and, and, and parallel to this in many ways. You know, that moment of anagnorisis, to use the Greek word, that moment of discovery, uh, when, when you know, you, he realizes, oh my goodness, you know, I've killed my father and married my mother. He's already realized he's killed his father. But, uh, you know, my goodness, I, uh, you know, I've, 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 I've married my mother. Um, I've had children. I have grown children by, you know, uh, the, uh, the, you know, the woman who has been my wife for years now turns out to be my mother. When Oedipus responds to that, um, it is simply horror, and he puts out his own eyes, because he can't bear it either. And then he expresses pity for his children. Um, but uh, but there isn't that moment, that sort of almost redemptive quality of their love, almost redemptive despite the horror, despite the way, um, you know, the, 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 the sources of the happiness in Turin's life have been poisoned like the sources of the river, you know, like, like, like Feilivren, like, uh, like the, the, uh, the sources of the river Syrian, but, um, nevertheless, it can't eradicate it entirely. Um, and that I think is really quite remarkable. Now, um, another element uh, here that I just want to touch on briefly, Brondir. There's a lot more I'd like to say about Brondir because I think that he's a really fascinating... Again, he's... Um, I, I touched very briefly on Brondir and sort of his foresight, uh, his foresightedness and his... Uh, the sense in which Brondir is the only one around who has his eyes open in some sense, not, you know, perfectly clearly, but he knows what's going on. He knows that there is doom unfolding, um, and yet can't do anything about it. Brondir, more than anything else, seems to to me to sort of embody the kind of helplessness of the human condition. He knows that something horrible is happening, and there isn't a thing he can do to stop us. To stop it. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, um, 
Oh, yeah, Yana, thanks for pointing this out. Yana's telling me people are having trouble getting into the class. Yana, I, that this, it's, it's the two links thing. I think make sure, tell people to go to uh, my Facebook page or my Twitter feed, go back to the website um, and click on the link that's there. Don't click on an old link or click on an email that they were sent. I, I realize there's a confusion there. So, yeah, if they, um, if they will, will click on the right link, they should be able to get in. I don't know any reason why they shouldn't. Um, thanks. So anyway, yeah, Brondier is, uh, uh, in this way, I, I think, um, I sort of feel that Brondier is, is sort of a, a more important character in this story, even than his contributions to the plot um, really, really justify. Um, and again, I, I, I'm sort of reminded, as I said last time, of in this expanded version the two really significant lame people that we get in this story, kind of bookending uh, Turin's career, Sador Hoppafoot at the beginning and uh, Brandir at the end. Um, and both of them sort of uh, make themselves to be symbols uh, of lameness in a different sense, right? Labadal is, uh, you know, the is lame because he ran from his fate, right? You know, he, he didn't want to be a soldier. He wanted to get home to the woods, and that's where he got his hurt, right? And so he said, you know, his own take-home message uh, from his story is uh, uh, is that if you run from your fate, you may be just taking a shortcut to meet it. Um, so the lameness of Labadal, the lameness of, of Sador, seems to point to, uh, you know, that um, the futility of that running away, you know, the feet of doom are going to catch you. We get that. We get that image several times. You know, y- your doom will catch up with you, right? And if you're running away from it, you will prove to be running only uh, as uh, as as Hopafoot can run away from his fate. In the end, we see Brandir, who is doing something, uh, who is different, and and with him, he is, he has insight, he has wisdom. Um, almost everything he says almost everything he tries to do is, is right, would be the right thing to do, but he's impotent, he's helpless. Um, and especially at the end when everybody's running around, right, when Turin is going and uh, Niniel's like, come, let's go and, and, and he's like, wait and then, you know, she's running off to the cliff and he's like, wait, and then, you know, he's chasing after, you know, poor Brondier limping here and there and not never being able to catch up with anybody um, you know, it is like Human wisdom and human insight uh, itself um, is 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 <laughs> limping along. Sarah says that Brondir and Melian should get together and form a support group. Uh, yeah, there is kind of a trend of uh, wise people not being listened to. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Neonor's suicide. Oh, by the way, and I should pause. Uh, someone, and I'm forgetting who it was, Scott, I think maybe, Scott Farmer, um, had mentioned in his comments uh, last night, um, uh, of course, reminding us of an important thing, and I had meant to mention it, but I'd forgotten. There's a third limping person in this story. Does anyone recall the, uh, the, the, the third person who is halt of one foot, uh, who plays a rather important role in this story? Anybody? Anybody recall? We get another third limping person. Yes, exactly. Morgoth. Morgoth is lame in one foot as well. Um, uh, 
Huron doesn't call him Clubfoot or anything, but uh, but uh, but yeah, yeah. I remember uh, Fingolfin hews his foot, and he goes ever halt of that foot thereafter. Um, and that, to me, is just sort of another way in which, you know, Morgoth serves as, and and here I sort of connect him in a sense more with more with Labadol than with Brundir. Um, he is in a sense the greatest, Morgoth himself is in a sense the greatest foil for Turin um, in this story, um, which is again emphasized by the fact that in near the very opening of the story in Hurin's words with Morgoth Morgoth names himself Turimbar essentially um, that's um, uh, uh, that should that should kind of cue us in to that particular um, to that particular that particular parallel but thinking of Morgoth and Morgoth's power and Morgoth's words with Hurin, let's come back to the to 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 Neonor's suicide here. Um, first, what exactly is she doing? Um, she is not. Um, again, I think of the, I think of the contrast. Uh, I, I, I was just thinking of Oedipus. Um, Jocasta, not only when she learns for a fact that Oedipus is her son, but when she can see that Oedipus himself is about to have it confirmed as well, she runs off and hangs herself off stage. Um, and so, you know, this sort of drive to this sort of being overcome by the horror and uh, and 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 ending her life, this is something that is. Um, uh, you know, I mean, there's precedent for this, but I think that in the description of Neonor here, we are given something else. I think. I think that there's more to it than that. And I, when I look at the imagery, when I look at her words, and I look at the imagery here, um, I think we're being directed to 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 sort of contextualize it in some ways. Um, three things I would say. First. The business with her name. She takes to herself both of her names. Of course, poor Neonor, poor Neonor only has two. Uh, a great poverty of names compared to her brother. Uh, but anyway, take now Niniel Neonor, daughter of Hurin. Mourning, mourning daughter of Morwen. Niniel Neonor translates to tear maiden mourning, right? Um, she is the tear maiden mourning. It is almost as if in her own uh, uh, it is almost as if in her own um, uh, 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 um, end here she is seeing her own name she is seeing herself as an allegorical figure right that is her name means tear maiden mourning morning morning daughter of 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 Morwen right um, she you know she is now the embodiment of mourning, and that's how she talks of herself, right? Um, water, water, take now Niniel, Neonor, daughter of Hurin. Um, water, take the tear maiden. Take mourning unto yourself. Um, the second thing um, is, so, so that is to say, I should go further. What am I? What am I suggesting there about her names? What conclusion am I suggesting? How does that help us to con- to contextualize her suicide? 
Um, for the woman named the Morning Tear Maiden, this death is almost like her own destiny, the fulfillment of her own fate. Um, what was Morning destined for? What was her fate ever from the beginning? Morrowind seems to recognize that in naming her Morning. Um, there is a sense in which she is not cutting herself off untimely from her fate, but meeting her fate. Um, second point. The imagery. With that, she cast herself over the brink, a flash of white swallowed in the dark chasm, a cry lost in the roaring of the river. I think of the, her confrontation with, with Glaurung, which we looked at last night, the way in which her will was utterly overwhelmed by the will of Glaurung. She was simply overpowered. A flash of white swallowed in the dark chasm. This shadow lay upon her, and she was helpless to overcome it. We see her as a flash of white swallowed by the darkness again here. Um... I know that suicide is a mortal sin. Um, that is a long-standing, um, and actually, in some ways, I, I find uh, the uh, medieval European tradition on suicide, um, Catholic tradition, uh, to be sort of uh, in, a, in its in its way sort of refreshingly consistent. It's 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 a it's a wonderful kind of example of the way that uh, medieval Europeans uh, tended to think. It's very consistent. It's very logical. Um, when you kill yourself, you're committing murder. You're killing a person who happens to be you. Murder is a deadly sin. Uh, suicide, therefore, is the one mortal sin which is guaranteed... It's, it's different from all other sins. Uh, because there is one way in which it is separated from any other possible sin. It is the only mortal sin for which there is, by definition, no opportunity to repent afterwards. Um, so it's not that it is in itself more terrible than every other mortal sin, but it is the only one which you will be guaranteed to go to your grave with that sin still upon your conscience. And so therefore, uh, it doth follow as the night the day uh, that suicide is a very, very grave sin, and, uh, and, and therefore suicides were always buried outside of consecrated ground, a tradition that was held for a long, long time. Uh, in Europe. I know that tradition. And therefore, a lot of people come to this passage and are like, but why is, a, a, you know, shouldn't Tolkien be, uh, I mean, Tolkien was Catholic, shouldn't Tolkien be uncomfortable with suicide? You know, he shouldn't be glamorizing suicide. I mean, not that this is necessarily very glamorous, but, you know, shouldn't he be condemning suicide? Are we to take from this, from the fact, the mere fact that Neonor commits suicide, that you know that she's that she's damned that this is this is a bad thing right that you know shouldn't we be um taking that as an obvious sort of cue that 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 this is this is wrong that this is bad um and i think it's not that simple and again i think that we saw that with neonor before um she was pitted against one who was way beyond her strength um there was nothing else she could have done with glaurung is there anything else she could do here? I'm not sure. I am not sure that this story suggests that there is. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, and by the way, I apologize, Yana. It was you who said the Morgoth thing about Morgoth limping. I couldn't remember which one it was. I just lo- looked it through everybody's comments earlier today, and I couldn't remember which one it was. That's, Yana, if that was you, I want to give you full credit for that, uh, for pointing that out last night when we were talking about it. Um, the other thing that I want to um, point to in the suicide passage here is the water, water, take me and bear me down to the sea. I don't know what Neonor was thinking here. Um, I have no idea to what extent she is thinking of, you know, uh, how, what the sea is meaning to her, what's in her mind when she's saying that. Um, But I know what should be in our minds based on everything else we've read about the sea and the significance of the sea and and those who lie over the sea. Um, There is a sense in which what she is seeking here is simply escape. That is one thing that the sea means, right? Think about the the debate in Nargothrond and 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 uh, you know uh, Gwyndor talking about why they should go down to the sea and seek the sea uh, and take refuge by the shore. You know how that's one thing that they can do when Turin scorns that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Again, to what extent is she thinking, you know, deep theological thoughts in this moment? I'm not sure that she is, but it's another that reference to the sea that she's not just saying like I want it all to end under, on, you know, on any by any costs, but rather she's seeking escape. Take me and bear me down to the sea. And of course, we know that seeking escape in the sea is also the route to Valinor, though that route be still closed. Um, to mortals in Middle-earth. Um, that also, that reference also seems to me to um, um, qualify any uh, sort of condemnation of uh, Neonor and her suicide that I would be uh, inclined to give. Um, anyway, I need to be a little bit more efficient here. <laughs> but I didn't want to. I didn't want to. Both the issues of suicide and incest were things I definitely wanted to address. Uh, so I don't regret taking time with this passage. But I do need to hustle a little bit more. Turin. Then Turin grasped Gurthang, and a fell light was in his eyes. And what shall be said of you, Clubfoot? He said slowly. Who told her secretly behind my back my right name? Who brought her to the malice of the dragon? Who stood by and let her die? Who came hither to publish this horror at the swiftest? Oh, the irony of accusing Brondir. Who came hither to publish it at the swiftest? Who hustled along? Limp, 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 limp. And sorry. Who would now gloat upon me? Do men speak true before death? Then speak it now quickly. Then Brondir, seeing his death in Turin's face, stood still and did not quail, though he had no weapon but his crutch, and he said, All that has chanced is a long tale to tell, and I am weary of you. But you slander me, son of Hurin. Did Glaurung slander you? If you slay me, then all shall see that he did not. Yet I do not fear to die, for then I will go to seek Niniel, whom I loved, and perhaps I may find her again beyond the sea. That's clearly how Brondir interpreted her words, which he heard. Seek Niniel, cried Turin. Nay, Glaurung you shall find, and breed lies together. You shall sleep with the worm, your soul's mate, and rot in one darkness. Then he lifted up Gorthang and hewed Brandir, and smote him to death. 
but the people hid their eyes from that deed, as he, and as he turned and went from Nengirath, they fled from him in terror. Um, this, I think, is the rock bottom of Turin's career. Um, it's been pretty bad before this point, but this is the point. I mean, certainly the death of Beleg is the most horrifying, um, but and there are obviously many other decisions that he makes, many other poor choices that he makes, which are weightier in the sense of affecting more people. Um, but I think for pure badness of choice, uh, uh, all other external things um, taken, you know, sort of cancelled out, um, this is his rock bottom, um, where he draws his sword, his black sword, uh, you know, where the Mormigil just murders the cripple who is speaking to him the truth because he doesn't want to hear it and he can't handle it. Um, uh, this, this is pretty bad. Um, the contrast between, you know, the way that he understands Glaurung and the way he wants to confound uh, Glaurung and Brandir here, um, very revealing, but again, also there's sort of still that uh, the denial that's so obvious here, because of course what he's saying is true not of Brandir, but of himself, right? That he is the one who is not that he's the soul's mate of Glaurung, that's a little strong, even of him, but he has been fleeing from the shadow. He has been wanting to resist the shadow. Everything he's done in his whole life, he has been consistently standing against the shadow. That's a good thing. But he's also brought the shadow as well. And the very curse that he has sought to escape, he has also been the instrument of uh, time and again. And we see that, I think, nowhere more clearly than here uh, in this moment. And he finds out the truth. They went out into the wild seeking you, said Mablung. It was against all counsel, but they would go to Nargothrond, when it was known that you were the black sword, and Glaurung came forth, and all their guard were scattered. Morwen none have seen since that day, but Neonor had a spell of dumbness upon her, and fled north into the woods like a wild deer, and was lost. Like a wild deer clad only in her hair, of course. Then, to the wonder of the elves, Turin laughed loud and shrill. Is, is not that a jest, he cried. Oh, the fair Neonor! So she ran from Doriath to the dragon, and from the dragon unto me. What a sweet grace of fortune! Brown as a berry she was, dark was her hair, small and slim as an elf-child, none could mistake her. Then Mablung was amazed, and he said, But some mistake is here. Not such was your sister. She was tall, and her eyes were blue, her hair fine gold, the very likeness and woman's form of Hurin, her father. You cannot have seen her. Oh, the horrible weight of that sentence. You cannot have seen her. No, had he seen? Uh, yes, he should have seen. Should he have seen the likeness in woman's form of Hurin, his father? You cannot have seen her. No, he never saw her until this moment. I Can I not? Can I not, Mablung? cried Turin. Why? But why no? For see, I am blind. Did you not know? Blind, blind, groping since childhood in a dark mist of Morgoth. Therefore, leave me. 
Go, go, go back to Doriath, and may winter shrivel it. A curse upon Menegroth, and a curse on your errand. This only was wanting. Now comes the night. And the horrible, terrible irony of him, his eyes being opened and seeing only darkness. Now comes the night. Um, I want to follow this up with two uh, points. Yeah, Yana, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. Um, look at the, the second one here. Brown as a berry she was, dark was her hair, small and slim as an elf child, none could mistake her. Isn't he describing Erwin Lalith here? Seems like a strange thing to recall at this point. Um, yeah, yeah, it, but no, I don't think it's strange, actually, but I think that's an awesome observation, Yana, that never occurred to me once. I don't know how I could have missed it with the elf child reference, but you're absolutely right. Um, of course, literally what Turin is doing is testing Mablong here, right? He is hoping against, this is his last desperate attempt to, uh, to try to find that his fate has not found him, that, uh, as soon as he hears that Neonor has run away, he knows. Right, he he knows, but he's trying to. He's hoping against hope that um, it wasn't really her. So he gives this false description of Neonor, knowing that Neonor didn't look like that, hoping that Mablung will be like, "Oh uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what she was like," and then he'll be relieved. But no, of course not. However, what he does describe, at, at, at the very least in the image, small and slim as an elf child, that should make us think of Lalith. Um, and Mablung says, no, 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 no. She wasn't Lalith. She was Neonor, right? No, no, no. N- not laughter, mourning. Yeah, your wife, the one that you've been happy with now for a while? Um, yeah, no, no, no. Um, it's not laughter. It's mourning. Yeah, yeah, I can confirm that for you. <laughs> it says, says, says Mablung uh, cheerfully. Uh, yeah, so, Yana, my primary thoughts about that are that this is, this is a sort of, again, another one of those expressions of, you know, sort of Turin's allegorical sisters here. Uh, and he, um, it's that final moment where sort of explicitly his happiness is being turned into mourning um, that, you know, the the one piece of, of joy that he had in his life is being turned into the most bitter jest uh, played against him by Morgoth. Um, and that that emphasis, I think, uh, is uh, uh, is what is being, uh, is kind of what's at stake here in this brief recollection of Lilith. But Yana, I had not thought of that, so I'm really glad that you pointed that out. I think that's great. And then Yana's other uh, um, other observation here um, from just earlier in the conversation with Mablung, um, their reaction to the news that Glaurung is dead. Then the elves looked at him in wonder and said, You have slain the great worm. Praised forever shall your name be among elves and men. So is Turin considered an elf friend because of his slaying of Glaurung? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that we, we, we get this taste of that here. Um, Yes, his life has been horrible, his life has been tragic. Yes, he bears some guilt for the downfall of Nargothrond. But you know what? He was also right about Nargothrond. It's not like Nargothrond was going to stand forever. Um, had they obeyed Olmo and taken down the, 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 the bridges, would they have been able to hold out? Yeah, for a while longer. Forever? No. Um, so, at the end of the day, yes, he is going to be remembered 
um, he is going to be remembered for slaying the dragon. He is the one who stood up to the shadow. And yeah, he was screwed. And yes, he made lots of bad choices. And yes, much of shadow and darkness came through him. But he struck a blow against the darkness and succeeded. He actually does accomplish something. His life as a whole isn't really a net loss. Um, Or at least so the elves would deem. Um, Okay. So I realized that I forgot to make a slide of uh, Turin's suicide, and I don't want to talk about it for too long, um, because um, um, I need to move on, and I want to get to people's questions. Um, but I, 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 my conscience is smiting me. I can't, uh, I can't possibly uh, pass over entirely the words of uh, Turin and his sword. So I'll just read it uh, on page one forty-five. Um, Kabad Aneras, Kabad Nairamath, he said. I will not defile your waters where Niniel was washed. Notice even in his suicide, uh, his presence is going to cast a shadow, right? He's, gonna, uh, he's going to, uh, to, to defile the waters. The waters which are pure, uh, and he even uses words of purification, waters where Niniel was washed, right? Um, Nino has been purified, has been cleansed, has been set free in her death. He is going to just defile the place uh, if he throws himself in there. For all my deeds have been ill and the latest the worst. By which I believe he means the slaying of Brandir. Then he drew forth his sword and said, Hail Gurthang, iron of death, thou alone now remainest. But what lord or loyalty dost thou know save the hand that wieldeth thee? From no blood wilt thou shrink. Wilt thou take Turin Turambar? Wilt thou slay me swiftly? And I think that the use of both of his names here, which is quite rare in the story, actually. I mean, Turin Turambar is what we tend to call him when we refer to him. We often refer to him as Turin Turambar, mostly because that's how it, the story is labeled in the Silmarillion, right? Of Turin Turambar. Um, but it's actually kind of unusual that he is using, on the first hand, his given name, the name that speaks to his lineage, Turin, son of Hurin, of the house of Hador, um, and also his final given name, Turinbar, master of doom, that name which has to, in both its senses, both the general senses of master of fate and the more specific sense of master of the, of the dark shadow, um, uh, both of those have to... Uh, have to have a very foul taste in his mouth right now. Uh, have to have to be fair, very bitterly ironic. Wilt thou take Turin Turambar? Wilt thou slay me swiftly? And from the blade rang a cold voice in answer. Yea, I will drink thy blood, that I may forget the blood of Beleg my master, and the blood of Brandir slain unjustly. I will slay thee swiftly. A couple things here. First of all, there is a sense in which um, there is a sense in which this, and, and, and can I just say for the record I have no idea how to do the sword voice uh, uh, I'm really I, I, I don't know 
what voice? And I've thought about this, and I still don't know. What voice should Gurthang have? I don't know. But anyway. Um, one thing, a, a few quick things, because uh, I would... I would, uh, I would, Nate, no, it sounds nothing like the sorting hat, I promise. Um, the few quick things that I would say about Turin's suicide here first, um, where Neonor seems to be seeking escape, and even in a sense, perhaps, as Turin interprets it, purification, cleansing, uh, Turin is seeking judgment. Remember that whole business about, you know, he was his own doomsman before, right? He held his own trial after the death of Cyrus and found himself not guilty, right? He's holding his own trial here again. Um, yes, you're right, Sandra. Benedict Cumberbatch should do the voice of the sword. Absolutely. I agree. Let's hire him. Um, but uh, anyhow, um, he, he, so he again is being, is being his own uh, judge and executioner. He is passing doom on himself here. And I think that that's a really important element. This is not... Uh, this too, I think, differs from, you know, from other suicides in that he is, he is passing judgment on himself. This is a self-execution as much as anything else. Um, uh, the, the other thing that I would say, like, thinking of what the sword says, um, the sword feels guilty. The sword says that I may forget the blood of Beleg, my master, and the blood of Brandir slain unjustly. Um, the blood of those two people, the two people who have been wrongfully slain uh, by Turin, um, the one by accident, the one on purpose, weigh apparently in some sense upon the conscience of the sword. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Andrew, tell me if I get this wrong. That the the voice of the sword, the fact that the sword talks, is something which Tolkien has carried over all the way from the very, very, very first seed of this story, which is the Kulervel sto- story in the Kalevala. Kulervel, in the end, uh, kills himself and talks to his sword first, and his sword responds. Now, Andrew, remind me. My my uh, recollection is that when Kulervo speaks to his sword and says, uh, will you kill me? Um, his sword says, yep, I'll kill anybody. I, you know, drink blood and eat flesh and that's what I do and yours will be just as awesome as anybody else's. No problems. Um, I'm here for you, is what the sword says. That is, the sword expresses indifference. Turin's sword doesn't express indifference. Um, Turin's sword expresses uh a conscience again. It, it has some sort of some sort of a moral sense, you know. Turin, I agree with your sentence, right? I too uh, uh, will pass judgment upon you. This blood needs to be avenged. The blood, this blood that I have been compelled to shed, um, and by the way, it wasn't my idea, um, needs to be avenged, and I will avenge it. Um, and that's really fascinating. Um, Sarah says, which is weird considering who made it. Yes, Aeol, you would not think. Aeol the Dark Elf would have placed uh, a very tender conscience in the heart uh, of this um, of this sword. But um, we have seen signs of this kind of tenderness before. The blade 
dulled itself. It became dulled when it it was damaged by the stabbing of Beleg. Um, and Gwyndor is like, this is a strange sword. It seems to mourn uh, for Beleg as do you. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so it seems to me that the character of the sword has been altered, I think. Um, altered through... I mean, I don't know how to understand it. Altered by, by being gifted to Beleg? Um, you know, has part of... has, you know, some of Beleg's own, uh, you know, spirit come into it? I, I have no idea. Um, but, uh, yeah, as Gord reminds us, Melian does tell Beleg that the dark heart of Aeol lives in the blade. Uh, yeah, I know, which is what makes it so strange <laughs> when this happens. Um, anyway, uh, so there's... there's uh, I feel like what we learn about the personality of the sword leads us directly into speculations for which we have absolutely no grounding. It's a fascinating, and it is therefore a really tantalizing passage for that reason. Um, the last thing that, of course, I would point out about Turin's suicide is that uh, he, he is the Mormigil. The Black Sword is one of his names. He is identified with the sword. So the breaking of the sword when he dies... Um, the you know again he too, uh, Turin also, uh, at various points has made himself into a quasi allegorical figure. Right, I am a black sword fighting against Morgoth. I am the Black Briar of Brethil, which is going to prick the underside uh, of of Glaurung. I am. Agarwine, son of Umarth. I am Nathan, the wronged. Um, all of these names that he gives himself, almost all of the names that he gives himself, are names which sort of point to a particular quality, a particular way that he is describing or identifying himself. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, good. Andrew is... Uh, thank you, Andrew. I knew you'd be able to, you'd be able to, to, to come up with it. Uh, confirms that in... Kulervo, uh, with Kulervo, the sh- the, in, in, in the Kalevala, the sword so, uh, uh, shows no guilt. Uh, that the, the words of the sword in the original are, I eat the flesh of the guiltless and drink the blood of the sinless. Um, the sword of Kulervo is sublimely indifferent uh, to the morality of the killing of anybody. Um, the sword doesn't care who it eats uh, and whose blood it drinks. Um, and again, we see Sir Tolkien has actively reversed that. But, um, uh, now, Gord, you make a great point. Um, can black ever hope to defeat black? Can darkness defeat darkness? Only light can defeat darkness. Yes, and in that sense, Turin was doomed from the beginning. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, I, Alyssa says it wants to give a sort of a psychological reading that it should speak in a voice which is like uh, uh, Turin's voice. It sounds more like Turin than it sounds like Aeol. That is, again, again, especially since his own name, the Black Sword, um, he is identified with this sword. The sword concurs with him. The sword agrees with him, both in, both in word and in sentiment, and uh, slays him and breaks itself. You know, and is and 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 is found to be broken. Um, you know, so in this, in yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah. Well, let me let me carry this on 
to the next topic, which is something that a bunch of you had asked and something I always meant to get back to. So let me get back to it, by all means. Back to Tour and his meeting with Turin. And I skipped this over when we did the Turin story, and I said I wanted to come back to it, because I wanted to read the Turin story first, so that we can get... Because, of course, Tolkien already had the Turin story in his head when he wrote this bit in the Tour story, um, to look at the significance of this moment. Even as he spoke thus... um, This is Tour again, of course. They heard a cry in the woods, and they stood still as grey stones, listening. This is Veronway, of course, in Tour. But the voice was was a fair voice, though filled with grief, and it seemed that it called ever upon a name, as one that searches for another who is lost. And as they waited, one came through the trees, and they saw that it was a tall man, armed, clad in black, with a long sword drawn, and they wondered, for for the blade of the sword also was black, but the edges shone bright and cold. Woe was graven in his face, and when he beheld the ruin of Ivrin, he cried aloud in grief, saying, Ivrin, file Ivrin, Gwyndor and Beleg, here once I was healed, but now never shall I drink the draught of peace again. Then he went swiftly away towards the north, as one in pursuit, or on an errand of great haste, and they heard him cry, file Ivrin, Thinduelas, until his voice died away in the woods. But they knew not that Nargathron had fallen, and this was Turin, son of Hurin, the Black Sword. Thus only for a moment, and never again, did the paths of those kinsmen, Turin and Tuor, draw together. Okay. Now, having read both stories, what do we make of this? Some fascinating stuff. Um... Yes, of course, as Nate points out, the cousins are both literally and metaphorically going in different directions at right angles from each other. Um, uh, and the fact that it is at this particular moment that their paths cross. Uh, remember the particular moment in each of their stories in which this happens. This happens as Tuor is being led by Veronwe cross-country from Nevrast to Gondolin, right? Tuor is in pursuit of his destiny, he is submitting to the will of Olmo, and he is being brought as Olmo's messenger to the gates of Turgon. Turin is running from Gondolin and going up to Dor Lomen upon the questionable advice, though uh, with power and manipulation behind it, of Glaurun to seek out Morwen and Neonor back in Dor Lomen, where they are miserable and in want, and not going in pursuit of Finduilas, uh, who could, in some sense, have saved him had he pursued and, uh, and rescued her. Um, a, a, a fact, by the way, to which I alluded almost never at all in any of these classes about Turin, um, that prophecy that if he saves Finduilas, his fate could still be turned aside. Um, but anyway. Tuor in, you know, is sort of making his journey um, in suffering and want, as we get in this story, but um, but in obedience, following the path that Olmo has laid before him. Turin is being sent on a crooked errand by the crooked advice and manipulation of Glaurung. This is the moment when he is performing not his worst deed, again, I still think the murder of Brondir is his worst single deed, but his making his most terrible mistake. Um, that is, not pursuing and saving Finduilas. Um, 
surely this meeting, this sort of crossroads shows, you know, the crossing of these paths does show us two, two lives, two careers going in two totally different directions. Um, notice also with, with Turin how he's crying out Finduilas's name. He's crying out Finduilas's name as he's turned his back on her and heading to Dor Loman. I'm not 100% sure how to take this, but tell me what you think of my theory. Right, exactly, Alden. He, uh, Alden asks, could, could he resist Glaurung? No, he couldn't. Does this suggest that there is a part of him that knows? He sh- that wants to chase Finduilas, that knows that he should be going after Finduilas, that what we are hearing is the echo of his own helplessness. Remember, when he meets with Iron, this is the passage we started with uh, uh, in... Uh, um, well, no, that I was going to start with and then end up making slide, like, number six uh, last night instead. But anyway, uh, the one where he meets with Iron and Iron tells him that Morin isn't here and then his eyes are opened and the lies of Glaurung are made plain uh, and he realizes that he was blind and now he sees again. Um, he is still blinded, but there is some kind of... There is some kind of... of recognition, even here, that there's part of Turin's spirit that is str- exactly, Scott, trying to fight Glaurung's will, but failing. Um, that's that's how I take it. You know, maybe I'm wrong, but that um, um, that seems to be implicit in his crying out for Finduilas as he's got his back to her and is going away. So here's my question. What do we do with this passage? That is... What's the... I know this sounds uh, really simplistic. What's the take-home message here? Um, I don't think that the take-home message here is Tuar makes good choices and Turin makes bad choices, right? Um, uh, You know, take Tuar as a role model for your life and take Turin as a negative role model for your life, right? Um, Here's what happens when one person goes down the bad road and one person goes down the good road. I don't think that's what we are getting here. Scott says, moral of the story is there, but for the grace of God go I. Yeah, something like that, Scott, actually, I would say. Um, Both of them are doing what they are doing under the influence of one of the powers, right? Uh, One of them, Olmo, the other one, Morgoth. Um, And neither one of them is exactly driving the bus at this particular moment. Turin is clearly under the power of Glaurung. He is not in fully in control. Tuor is not fully in control. He is at least partially under the power of Olmo. Um, one has a good destiny, a triumphant destiny. The other has a horrible destiny. And part of that just seems to be the way it is. This is... Um, yes, Jana, of course I agree. Sam Gamgee is the one who is the positive example to follow, not necessarily Tour. Not that Tour is a bad example, but uh, but yeah, yeah. If you're looking for role models, you can't do better than Sam Gamgee. But yeah, um, yeah. 
When I take the stories of Tuor and Turin together, one of the conclusions that seems to me inescapable is this is a glimpse of the human condition in the world. Um, things aren't fair. Things aren't fair. Um, uh, y- not everybody has the same opportunities. Not everybody will come to a happy end, even if they make good choices along the way. Um, Turin and Tuor are headed in different directions, and yes, their decisions influence that, but they are their paths are laid in very different ways and in very different places. And I think that we need to be careful not to sort of rationalize that too much. Um, well, I've got uh, a few questions still that I want to get to, um, so let me try to do that before I give up utterly. Uh, Ed has been teasing me that I'm going to have to set up a supplemental Q&A session to my supplemental Q&A session, <laughs> so I'm going to do what I can here. <clears throat> Singing and naming. This was from, uh, from, from Roy last night. Thinking about these two stories in terms of the music, Tuor sings a lot, and often, before momentous decisions. He also declares himself openly whenever he's asked his name. In the, in the Narnihin Hurin, only, the only two songs, unless I missed something, are Hurin's Lament to Lalith and Turin's L- Lament for, for Beleg. And Turin never declares himself openly by name except to Glaurung. He seems most courteous to Glaurung. <laughs> this seems important, is it? Yeah, sure. I like that. Um, as far as the name thing goes, uh, I think that that's significant in that it seems to be part of the entire spirit of both of those two stories. Um, if there is one central thing that I think differentiates the choices that Tuor makes and the choices that Turin make... Um, it is that Tuor embraces his fate and Turin resists his fate. Now, even saying that, how bloody unfair is that? Um, if you were Turin, would you submit to your fate? <laughs> what would submitting to your fate look like if you were Turin? Turin's fate's horrible. Uh, so, I mean, what's he supposed to do? And again, I think that in, in one sense, standing up to his standing up against his curse is what he's supposed to do. Um, I, you know, it, be, he is the black sword. That's that's that, that's sort of okay. Killing Glaurung, that was a great deed, and nothing else that happens is going to take that away from him. Um, stabbing the worm of Morgoth, you know, from underneath, that's Turin's job. Um, is his career futile? Yes, it's futile. But as we were looking at last night, he has a very northern spirit, and he would say to you, as he said to the people in Nargothrond, what the heck difference does that make? Okay, so it's futile, so I'm not going to win. So what? That doesn't mean it's not right to fight. That doesn't mean that death in battle is worthless. Um, It's not the point. Um, Scott says he thinks that this is why uh, Tolkien wanted to have him be the slayer of Morgoth in the end. You know, Scott, I kind of suspect so. You know, it, there's almost a sense in which Turin, in that sense, uh, by being the slayer of Morgoth in the end, becomes this kind of... Uh, 
ironically redemptive quasi-Nordic figure that is like what if Ragnarok came and the good guys won, right? What if that spirit that says, I will strike against the worm, I will strike against the giants, uh, even though we're going down in flames, um, what if you did that and and won? Um, you know, I, I, I think, um, t- to me, there, there seems to be a sort of an element of that uh, in his choice, Um that if you think about it from that point of view, it does make sense that Turin would be the one who would come back and strike the death blow against Morgoth. Um, remember, Tolkien abandoned that. I want to make sure we don't, you know, we don't get confusing. I don't want you to be reading the Narn here in the in Unfinished Tales and be thinking that the death blow against Morgoth is what's coming in the future of the Turin that we are reading about here in this story. That's a Turin from. Uh, uh, from an earlier version, and Tolkien does seem to have abandoned that idea. Uh, but, nevertheless, um, to try retroactively to make sense of how that that version of the story worked from earlier, um, it's that seems to me to make a bit of sense. Um, so anyway, so we do have that submitting to fate and resisting fate thing going on with the two of them. Though again, as I say, I, 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 that seems to me totally understandable. Um, the singing thing I do think is interesting and uh, Roy, the main thing that I would say in response to this is that I think that the two things that you're seeing do seem to me to be connected Um, that or to say that a different way I think it's no accident that Tuor is the greatest singer among the humans and he is also the one who is the, you know, an excellent instrument of destiny, you know, who renders himself up to be um, you know, Olmo's instrument and uh, and the instrument of fate. Um, the fact that he also is the great singer that 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 seems to me to be non non coincidentally sensical. Uh, okay. Oh, sorry. Sharon Powell, two questions. With regard to Morgoth's curse on Hurin and his family, are we to interpret this as operating as action at a distance, or does it only operate through servants such as the orcs, Glaurung, and the Black Breath? In fairy stories in general, curses often do have a magical effect. Is this the way we are to interpret Morgoth's curse in Tolkien's universe? It does seem to be the case in Beleg's killing, or is this just bad luck? Yeah, uh, Sharon, I agree with you. And curses the functioning of curses in Tolkien's world does seem to support that, you know, Sharon, what you're pointing to is that kind of general fairy story aspect of curses. Think, for instance, of Meme's curse against Endrog, right? Which is, uh, according to the notes that Christopher Tolkien points to in the appendix, briefly thwarted by Beleg, but then it ends up coming true anyway. Um, Meme's lays a curse upon him. We don't know... the Curses in Tolkien are kind of like magic in Tolkien. We can rarely see them operating. We don't see the means of it. You know, how... Why is it efficacious? How exactly does it function? We don't know exactly. Um, But these kinds of curses often work in Tolkien. Um, The curse that uh, Meme lays upon the treasure of Nargothrond 
certainly back in the original version, if you go back to the Book of Lost Tales, that was a huge version. The whole downfall of Doriath and everything that comes is explicitly because that gold was cursed. And it's the curse of Meme that was laid upon the treasure um, that has that is causing all the terrible things that go on to happen um, uh, with the 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 death of the Elf King, who will later be named Thingol, uh, and uh, and all the rest of it. So that the fact that those kinds of curses come true and come true w- through you know operating as action at a distance, as you're saying, um, something like the death of Beleg by Turin. Um, that kind of an incident is exactly the kind of thing that we would sort of expect to see when someone has laid an efficacious curse upon somebody else. Um, But, of course, you're also right to point out that the majority of the time we do see this operating through his agents. We see the will of Morgoth at work in a more sort of particular way. There are implications that if Turin lies hid... Um, you know, his desire to change his name and to hide his identity is not totally useless. Um, it is only when the, the, his identity is known that Morgoth comes back to pay attention to him more. Um, th- there are indications in his notes that when he is in Brethel, he is in fact hidden from Morgoth. Morgoth doesn't know where he is. And therefore, he has his little moment of happiness, right? The curse has found him anyway, right? Uh, through... Uh, through Niniel and her uh, amnesia, but um, uh, but nevertheless, he is sort of shielded from him. In Doriath, he's shielded from him. He's only revealed when he is wearing the dragon helm um, uh, uh, when Beleg brings it to him, and that's when Morgoth closes in on him. So there does seem to be a sense in which the real malice of Morgoth, the real uh, uh, sort of manipulation of events against Turin, does seem to happen not just, it's not just kind of taking effect in some way, um, in some unknown, unseen way, but is actually directed at him by the active malice of Morgoth and principally through his agents. Um, But it is, yeah, uh, Sandra says, uh, I find Morgoth's curse in this story wonderfully... uh, uh, complex. Um, yeah, uh, I, absolutely. Um, uh, I, I I totally agree with that. Um, anyway, so so I you know we definitely see these things happening. It's not just bad luck. Also, there does seem to be a Job theme in this story, but with the twist that Job will come back to kill Satan at the end of time. <laughs> Job gets his come up. Uh, do you think Job influenced Tolkien with regard to the Turin story? Absolutely, 100%. Yes, of course, we know that the, the Kalevala was his primary source uh, in the Turin story. Um, but do I think that the story of Job never crossed his mind? I absolutely do not think that the story of Job never crossed his mind. Um, and whether or not it did, I don't care. Uh, when we put those two stories together, we can see them resonating with each other in some really important ways. Um, Job, for those of you unfamiliar with the story... Um, I won't retell the whole story, but the story of Job is of a a, a person who is a holy and upright person. God has a good relationship with God, and God permits him to be tested. God permits Satan to go and do lots of... to totally wreck Job's life. And Job, through the wrecking of his life, through his torment, remains faithful to God. And then God comes at the end. But now Job 
doesn't take this quietly. Um, Job is famous in the Middle Ages. Job was a symbol of patience. Everyone's like, patient Job. If you actually read Job, it doesn't sound all that patient, actually. It's pretty indignant. And he spends most of the book of Job complaining um, and basically saying, God, what the heck? I was good. Why is all this crap happening to me? Why are all, you know, basically the book of Job asks in capital letters, why do bad things happen to good people? And then God comes and gives his answer at the end. The answer, by the way, satisfies, uh, is, is very unsatisfying to many people, though I think it's the only excellent answer to the question. And that is, the answer to that is above your pay grade, my friend. That's a short uh, synopsis of what God says to Job at the end. Um, but yes, Andrew, uh, Andrew says, didn't uh, Tolkien do a translation of Job? Uh, yeah, he did, he did Jonah, of course, wasn't he working on Job? I also thought that he was working. Um, he was working on Job, uh, but anyway, I, I, he knew Job. I mean, of course, he knew Job. Um, so, uh, so certainly that would have been uh, available to him. But um, anyway, um, I do think that there's a parallel there. That uh, to me, Sharon, that the primary thing that I would point to as the as the greatest significance of that parallel um, is the fact that. If one is tempted to ask, and one may easily be tempted to ask when looking at when reading the story of the children of Hurin, why is all of this stuff permitted to happen to them? I mean, it's awful. Why doesn't somebody do something? Um, okay, Olmo, your power is diminishing in in, in Middle Earth, and 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 the the sources of Syrian are tainted. Okay, fine, but seriously, somebody please throw these people a bone. In that way, it's to me like the story of Job. They have been, you know that. In the with the children of Hurin, Iluvatar has backed off and allowed Morgoth to totally wreck them. That does seem to have happened. So what's the conclusion? A similar one in the end. Where we get with Neonor's suicide, where we get thinking back to the conversation between Hurin and Morgoth, um, to me, I think the truest answer um, to this, you know, or sort of response to this is the one that Neonor gives. One of the things that I didn't talk about. See, I want to go back to that slide I spent so much time on and spend some more time on it. When she says, farewell, O best beloved. And she says, oh, happy to be dead. Of course, he's not, he'd have been happier if he had been dead. But, uh, but he is happier in death. Hurin said to Morgoth at the beginning, You lie. Morgoth says, There is nothing outside the circles of the world, and within the circles of the world they shall never escape me. Hurin says, You lie. Remember, we talked about that. Um, what's he lying about? Well, he's not lying about his power within the circles of the world. He does have power within the circles of the world, um, and he shows it in his treatment of Hurin's children. But um, he is lying about there being nothing beyond the circles of the world. At least I think that we have reason to believe Hurin, Hurin's inspiration here. Um, the, the, the thing that is placed in his heart at that moment that he has not learned from the Eldar. Um, Morgoth is fooling himself, I think. Um, they do escape. And it is in this sense. Again, 
more than anything else, I think, that the story of the children of Hurin shows us the human condition, shows us in a really stark and honest way what human life in the world is, or at least can be. And one of the conclusions is death is a gift. Um, it, you, you can begin to see a little bit more clearly um, how, uh, how, how death may be understood to be a gift. As uh, Sarah says, beyond the circles of the world is more than memory. Yeah, uh, I, I, so I, I, I trust both Hurin and Aragorn uh, that Morgoth is wrong about there being nothing outside the circles of the world. Um, good. Uh, two quick things. Uh, Andrew has confirmed, yes, uh, thanks to uh, to um, uh, to Andrew and to Hammond and Skull uh, uh, confirming that Tolkien did in fact work on the Book of Job, um, providing its initial draft and playing an important part in establishing the final text. Um, good, good. Uh, and uh, Gord, I agree with you. Gord says I'd call it uh, an echo of Job ra- rather than a parallel. Absolutely, I totally agree. Um, it would be going way too far to be saying like Turin is Job and drawing any really, really, uh, d- you know, explicit parallels like that. Absolutely, um, echo. But I do think that we see it is primarily in the suffering of Turin um, and the extent to which evil is given power over him in his is is you know has power over him in his life um to cause him almost unlimited suffering uh that i hear and see the echo of job not to mention the question the question which job asks repeatedly and loudly why are these terrible things happening to me i don't deserve it um turin doesn't say that but i think his story still provokes the same question uh, okay, next question. Scott's question. Hurin confirms that Morgoth came to men before the Adain came west and told them lies. Now Morgoth is still implying that men's existence is in this world alone, and beyond there, and, and beyond there is nothing. Therefore, he should be the ruler of men, since he rules the world. Might we then believe that Morgoth caused death in an attempt to enslave the race of men? Or perhaps this is a tale men tell themselves to remind them how bad Morgoth is. Um, this is a complicated question. Yes, we talked about this, and there is a sense in which men are more at the mercy of Morgoth. Um, you know, there are references in the Silmarillion to how um, men were always readier to Morgoth's will than the Eldar were, um, but I think it can also be said that they are more in Morgoth's power because Morgoth does, in fact, have significant levels of power within the circles of the world, um, and he can do them harm, and they are not fully, but much closer to, at his mercy, than the Eldar are. Um, at the end of the day, the Eldar can escape him. If their bodies are destroyed, they go back to Mandos, and they're back in Valinor. Um, and men... Of course, they also can escape through death, and in a sense, their escape is more permanent. But again, the Eldar, their relationship with Morgoth is different. Um, he claims himself to be the ruler of men. Of course, Scott, I'm also made to think of Sauron's uh, taking him to himself the title of the 
the, the Lord of Men. Remember, that's what prompts the Numenorians to come and uh, beat up on him in the first place. Uh, our Pharaoh's not going to take that sitting down because he considers himself the King of Men. So that claim, um, and and you know, I think in this as in so many other things, uh, Sauron is kind of following in Morgoth's, uh, Morgoth's footsteps there. So I think that that sort of makes sense. Um, did Morgoth cause death in an attempt to enslave the race of men? Did he cause death? Uh, well, again, that's so unclear. Um, when we do get that um, sort of Garden of Eden narrative uh, in the, is the, the sort of appendix to the, uh, the, the Atherbeth, the debate of Finrod and Andreth uh, in Morgoth's ring, um, it's, uh, it, the motivations of Morgoth would seem to be um, very similar. Uh, uh, to, uh, that, that is to say, his similar to what he was sort of trying to do in the first place with the Noldor, um, trying the way in, in Valinor, the way that he sort of drives a wedge between them and the Valar. Um, he is trying to win the loyalty, you know, to first alienate men from Iluvatar, and then to take them unto himself. Um, he doesn't ever just want to destroy the children of Iluvatar. He wants them to serve him. Um, so that seems to be what he's doing. But of course, in a sense, as one might expect, this backfires on Morgoth, right? Um, because by... Uh, by introducing... By, devi- by driving that wedge between them and Iluvatar, by tempting them and bringing them into sin, he, if death comes about as a consequence of that, he has also therefore facilitated their own escape and undermined himself that he, lame as he is, is taking a shortcut to the result that he was, you know, his taken a shortcut to that from which he was running away, just like Labadol Hopafoot, right? He uh, has tried to prevent uh, men from being close to Iluvatar and has ended up facilitating their uh, escaping his clutches and going back to them. Um, Yeah, Nate says that Morgoth makes men think death is a punishment, not a gift. Yes, yes, um... And in a sense, he has sort of facilitated making it a gift in that sense. Um, Okay. Uh, I'm going to skip that one because I need to go pretty soon. As usual, when I do my Europe-friendly times, um, I've got to to go feed my children, so... uh, uh, pretty soon I'll be able to hear the pitter pat of feet upstairs as people start to ransack the house for food. So uh, I- I'll have to I'll have to go in a minute. But let's look at Tom's questions because, as always, uh, Tom Hillman's questions are excellent. We spoke of the lameness of Brandir and so- oh, right. Uh, I, he talks about Morgoth here too. Um, so I can skip over that because we already talked about that. Uh, Tom was also pointing that out in his email. Um, so I'll go to the second one. If the pity of one can rule the fate of many, as we know, so can a failure of pity. Turin all too often wears his doom and sorrows like honorable wounds and also frequently sinks into self-pity. 
There's a slender but telling difference between feeling the pain of your sorrows and feeling sorry for yourself, and it is entirely possible to straddle the line between them. Now Findula says of Turin that pity can ever pierce his heart, and he will never deny it. Pity, maybe, shall ever be the only entry. Now, there's a lot more we could say here about pity in the larger context of the passage I just quoted. Turin pities Gwyndor, but according to Finduelas, he does not pity her, so she wrongly thinks she cannot gain entry to his heart. And she asks Gwyndor for his pity, and she pities him. It would also be interesting to expand our discussion to examine pity in the Narn in general and in the tale of Tuor. But for right now, I'm fi- I find really interesting. What I find really interesting is what Finduela says about Turin in pity, in the context of the way Turin faces his fate and makes choices. Caught between the heat and cold of his nature, Turin does not seem to have enough pity for others. How much does this rule his fate and the fate of those near him? An excellent question, and. I'm not going to be able to answer it satisfactorily. One of the main reasons I wanted to read it to you is I just kind of, kind of, I want to commend this to you. I sort of, I recommend uh, to you to follow the line of uh, of reasoning that Tom is introducing here, um, thinking about pity, uh, uh, you know, uh, pity more generally uh, in the Narn in general and in the tale of Tuor and the role that pity plays. I think it's a very important one, um, and. Uh, but anyway, thinking now more specifically about Turin and the final version of the question that Tom asks there. Caught between the heat and cold of his nature, Turin does not seem to have enough pity for others. Um, how much does this rule his fate and the fate of those near him? Um, it's an interesting list. Make a list of people for whom Turin shows pity. And a list of people for whom Turin shows an inadequate amount of pity. To whom does he show pity? Sador? Um, the other outlaws, right? He has pity for them. He has pity uh, for Gwyndor. He has pity for Nienor, very importantly. Um, Nienor finds the entry to his heart through pity. Um, he does pity her, and that's a good thing. Meme, yes, meme. That's the other one I was thinking of. Both Mitch and Jeff were saying that. Meme, Lalith. He pities Lalith. He pities meme. Um, these are all good things. Look at the contrast between Turin and the other outlaws and their relationships to meme. There again, I think we're seeing something really good about Turin. If there's in a sense, actually, I would almost point to that passage as one of the places where we can see most clearly that there is something intrinsically noble in Turin's character. And it's his pity. It's his pity that is at the heart of that. Um, good. Alyssa, the woman sort of in the midst of being assaulted by the outlaws. Yes, the, 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 the almost raped woman uh, that he has pity on. We see pity, pity deeply stirring him a lot. Um, upon whom does he not have pity when perhaps he should? Finduelas, right? Who else? Who else or where else, in what other situations, does he not show pity or show an insufficient amount of pity? Brondir, yes. Both Sandra and Nate simultaneously said Brondir, yes. Yes. Chris says Cyros. That's interesting. Um, (sighs) 
closely linked. I'm not sure, Chris, that I would say that. Andrew says it too, though. Yeah. Remember Gandalf's words to Frodo. Pity? It was pity that stayed his hand. Pity and mercy not to strike without need. Pity and mercy. They're not identical, but they're related. Mercy. He shows insufficient mercy to Cyros, right? Um, had he shown more mercy to Cyros, things would have ended differently there. Um, Cyros is not necessarily an object of pity, but he should have been an object of mercy. Um, but I think the... Um, uh, I think the 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 line between them is 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 very fine, and I think that Gandalf's association of them is an important one. Um, that is to say, mercy is often inspired by pity. He doesn't look at Cyrus's weakness, right? He doesn't um, show him. He doesn't show him... I mean, it would be mercy, because Cyrus... Uh, it's not too hard to argue that uh, Cyrus deserves what he gets. You know, you can say that what Turin did to him was orc work, um, as Mablung suggests, that it was a bit orc-spirited of him to take the vengeance that he takes. But I think it's pretty hard to argue that Cyrus received more than he deserved. I think, um, I, I, I don't think he got more than he deserved. But that doesn't mean he shouldn't have been shown mercy. Or rather, it doesn't mean that it wouldn't have been a good thing for Turin to show him mercy. Um, and that mercy would perhaps have been inspired by pity. Um, Scott says Nellis. Um, the uh, the elf woman who befriended him in Doriath, I agree, um, and I would connect Nellis and uh, uh, and Finduilas there. Remember the number of times people said in this story, especially Melian to Turin, "You're you're no Baron, right? You're you're not Baron." Yeah, no, you know the difference between Turin and Baron? Baron noticed when an elf woman fell in love with him. Turin, twice, twice, has an elf maiden fall for him and is totally oblivious to it. He's like, he doesn't even remember Nellis. He's like, oh, who's that? Oh, yeah, she was uh, uh, somebody. Yeah, mm, whatever. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I... Um, But he doesn't, and and, and uh, the passage of Finduilas is from the uh, the appendix there that uh, that Tom was quoting earlier on. Um, it, she says he feels no pity for me; rather, he reveres me. It's not that he thinks ill of her. It's not that he you know doesn't care about her or finds her below him. Uh, the problem is he doesn't recognize that she is in love with him. He doesn't have pity on the sorrow that her love for him is bringing to her. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so yes, insufficient pity. Had he, been, you know, in, in a sense, he's, he, he, he sets himself up to be barren. You know, he, he, uh, um, he, uh, um, Baron is one of his role models, it seems, at times. Uh, you know, he sort of points to Baron as a role model. Um, would that he had been barren, right? 
had he been Baron, had he gone on to, I mean, and he, and it looks like again, thinking of Gwyndor's prophecy, that might have happened. Had he pursued Finduilas? Had he rescued Finduilas? Had the two of them, the, the two of them, probably. I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that they would have gotten together, right? That this would have been another of those very few examples of the joining, again, like Tuor, the joining of human and elf. That would have happened, and who knows what would have come from that. But he doesn't. That, that destiny is not his. And again, his lack of, his lack of pity. Um... Yeah, good. Uh, um, Sandra says he's very myopic to others around him, to their feelings and desires. Yes, I think you know, people often talk about the pride of Turin, and increasingly, see from the Silmarillion account, I would describe the pride of Turin as chiefly being of the megalomaniacal ver. Variety. That is, the way that he keeps setting himself up as a captain and being like, we shall defy, Mar- we shall, you know, uh, cut the fingers from the claw of Morgoth if he extends it, if he extends his hands towards us. That kind of like, I am thinking, I have a very inflated view of myself and I think far too much of myself. That's the kind of pride um, that I always, uh, always used to associate with Turin. Again, chiefly because of his treatment uh, in the shorter Silmarillion version. In this version, I don't see that nearly so much. Um, the, and, and this here especially, that passage in Nargathrond where he's explaining when he does his whole uh, uh, you know, northern mythos thing um, is, uh, is uh, really kind of changes my view of his megalomania. His point is not that he thinks he can win, but rather that fighting is the right thing to do. And that makes to me a lot more sense. But this doesn't mean that I think he's not guilty of pride. In this expanded version of the story, the way in which Turin seems to be most guilty of pride is pride in the sense of being self-regarding, of having his eyes focused too much upon himself, and not, Sandra, as you're saying, upon others, upon the feelings and desires of others. Um, Inflating himself, again, not in the sense of, I can conquer Morgoth single-handedly, but in the sense of... um, you know, like his not going to Doriath. Both times he won't go to Doriath. Both when he doesn't go back when he's been pardoned, and when he won't go back when he when he knows that Morwen is there, uh, and he won't fulfill, uh, he w- will not earn the forgiveness of Iron uh, by return by returning to Doriath and checking in with his mom. Um, in both of those cases, it is because he's being too self-regarding, because he is. Um, uh, uh, his his view of himself is really is really I think slanted, um, but um, anyhow, uh, I should go. One last comment that I want to make. I don't have too much to say about it, um, but I, I just want, did want to mention it because I love this part. In the in in the appendix part, the appendix part of this is one of my favorites actually, and it's one of the reasons why I really like the Children of Hurin version. Because in the Children of Hurin, um, Christopher has gone back and basically integrated all of these bits into the story so that he makes it one big contiguous story, and I love those bits. 
Um, but one of the bits that doesn't make the cut and isn't in uh, the Children of Horan because Tolkien seems to have changed his idea. I love the little nugget that Christopher gives us that Tolkien is toying with the idea of having Turin retain the helm, uh, the helm of Hador all the way through his career. That the mask he wears at the Battle of Tumhalad, at the downfall of Nargothrond, is in fact the helm, uh, the dragon helm of Dor Loman, and that he's wearing the dragon helm of Dor Loman when he kills Glaurung at the end. Now, I totally recognize the fact Tolkien seems to have ditched the idea because it was simply too... it, it, it strained credibility too much to, uh, to think of the helm, him somehow regaining or retaining the helm and all of the things that happened to him. How's he possibly going to get it back? How's it going to make its way back to him again and again? Um, after all the times he should have lost it. Um, I recognize the difficulties there, but darn it, I love the thing with the helm and with his, the fact that, the fact that he's wearing the helm um, of, of, uh, of Hador at that battle, and when he meets Glaurung for the first time, and the exchange that he and Glaurung have about the helm, and the fact that he has to lift the visor of the helm of Hador to look with his own eyes into Glaurung, the helm of Hador protecting him from this, uh, from not only the fire, but in this sense even from the spell and enchantment of the will of Glaurung, and by lifting up the visor of the helm of his father's and looking with his own eye into Glaurung's eyes, is his spirit it overcome. I love that. I mean, I, I I find that so rich and 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 wonderful. I just um, I really wish there were some way that could have happened. Again, I, I I I sympathize with what seems to be the reasons why Tolkien decided to pitch it, but um, but I do. Uh, I just wanted to mention the fact that I really love that idea, and it's something that you know, sort of in an alternate world, I wish could have been could have been kept in. But okay. All right, well, I didn't do every single question I could possibly have wished to do, but I did get through most of my stuff through only keeping you for two solid hours. Uh, um, so I, 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 will, I will go before my children uh, lead a riot against me. But thank you very much for joining me. We will have our regular class on Tuesday evening at my Europe unfriendly time, sadly, um, and where we will begin the Second Age and talk about Numenor. Um, so I look forward to moving on to the Second Age with you. We're going to do another one of these in a few weeks. Uh, Wednesday, February 12th, um, which is only a couple weeks down the road, is the next of these Q&A sessions. We'll talk about some, some Second Age stuff. Uh, and feel free to send me, um, to send me uh, questions by email uh, to olson at mythguard.org. Um, uh, and uh, you can also post them to the Mythguard or Tolkien Professor social media outlets, um, or you can post them here in the questions box during the sessions, and I'll get them that way, too. So thanks very much, everybody. Thanks for joining me. Bye!